APU. American Public University is proud to present Exploring STEM. Hello, my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we're talking with Dr. Shelley Carter, Program Director in the School of STEM. And our conversation today is about her career in the STEM field. And welcome, Shelley. Thank you very much for having me, Bjorn. It's always a wonderful opportunity to talk with you. I'm excited uh, to hear about uh, the journey that is your research career and and the jobs you've had. And so let's go ahead and jump into it. Can you give us an idea of what you studied in your graduate studies? Absolutely. So I will say I was always um, one of those dorky children that was destined to be a, a bench scientist or a research scientist. And when I was growing up, I was influenced, I think, the same as a lot of people um, my age by Jurassic Park. And well, maybe not too many people, but I was definitely influenced by Jurassic Park. And I was going to help uh, recreate an extinct species or help with an endangered species. Around the same time, there was a lot of work going on with the California condor, for example. So I went to undergrad um, in biology, never wanted to go to medical school, so I avoided a lot of the typical pre-med courses and just focused on on research-relevant courses, and then went to graduate school for molecular biology. But very quickly, um, towards the end of my undergraduate and as I was entering graduate school, I decided that I didn't want to pursue that, you know, gene splicing to bring back an extinct species. And instead, I moved into biomedical research. And what I researched actually were genes that in humans predominantly play a role in the movement and the migration of neurons. So if we think about the human brain, it sort of has this typical image of, uh, you know, wrinkly structure. It looks kind of like a cauliflower on the outside. And that happens because neurons migrate on top of each other. And they do this in order to increase the surface area. You can pack more neurons into the same space. They also are closer together. So when they're passing signals back and forth, it's quicker. And the genetic pathway that I studied or the genes that were in that genetic pathway are involved with the way those neurons migrate. Well, those same genes, like many of the other genes in the human self or human species, are also found in other organisms, including a microscopic worm called C. elegans, which was actually what I did my graduate work in. And so I studied those genes and their activity in C. elegans, and we identified that they were involved with movement of cells in C. elegans, just like they were in humans. They were involved not only with the movement of neurons in this microscopic worm, but also the movement of materials between neurons. And so they had a role in what's known as uh, neurotransmitter recycling. And if your neurotransmitters aren't recycling quickly enough in humans, it can lead to epilepsy and epileptic-like convulsions. And in C. elegans, we saw the same thing. So my graduate work actually helped um, identify some of the first connection between those neuronal migration genes and epileptic-like convulsions in a microscopic worm. They also played a role in the actual division of cells. So we were able to identify some connection to cancer cell growth. And that's wonderful. There's a lot there. And the first thing that's exciting was that you're inspired by Jurassic Park, you said, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, which is a wonderful movie. Um, it's funny, when, when I first saw Jurassic Park, I was inspired by the score from John Williams, but that's because I'm a music nerd. Were there other movies that, from a STEM or a science perspective, that really inspired you, say, when you were in your youth? Um, yes, actually. Um, I'm really dating myself with some of these, but Medicine Man um, with Sean Connery. 
and the the way that that movie in particular not so much the the details of the movie but the the voiceovers if you will associated with that movie and talking about all of the untold chemical wonders in the world around us and how we don't understand the biodiversity that we have and we don't necessarily understand the resources that nature can give us and that all directly ties back to you know in some ways my field or you know biomedical research at least but yeah so medicine man was also informative nice um i don't think i've seen medicine man in a previous podcast with dr kevin smith uh, we talked about one of the movies that inspired him which was hackers from 1995. <laughs> yes. And it's wonderful because I think when we look at it, at the movies that inspired us in the past, as they age, we're like, well, it's not the best movie, but you know, it inspired us for the time, which is wonderful. And the other thing that, that really stuck out to me was that you uh, really started working with worms. And I'm sure as a young adult, and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to go into science, I'm going to research, and then you start working with worms. But it, it's, I'm sure it's quite amazing to see how connected worms are to other organisms nature is one of the the great recyclers so if something works well in a particular organism through evolutionary history it's not going to be recreated using completely different parts um, so we see that when we look at genes and we see that when we look at genetic pathways there's a, often a significant amount of overlap in how something works in different species so you don't have to study in humans because obviously that's unethical for a whole host of reasons and instead you can work with research animals and there's a lot of benefits to it for example c elegans in particular has a three-day lifespan so i could study hundreds and thousands of animals in the course of a year, which is much, much quicker than we could do with other research organisms like mice. Um, developing research, new research systems is really great because it allows us to do a lot very quickly. And especially if we take it to, to modern times in the combination with, you know, high throughput computing and things that we can do through simulation, we, we really can advance in, in leaps and bounds compared to, you know, the olden days where we were doing research studies in primates. And that's wonderful. I really like how you talked about how with the worms, did you say it was a three-day? Yes, three-day lifespan. Yeah, three-day lifespan, which is crazy. And I was watching a special about studying flies, and I think their lifespan was pretty short. <laughs> It is. So yeah, when I was in graduate school, actually, there were some fly labs as well. They were on a different floor of my building. And the worm people liked to make fun of the fly people because when our research subjects got loose, they quickly just dried up in the lab and you never noticed because they were microscopic. But when the flies got loose, they ended up in everyone's coffee. And that that's hilarious. And, and I'm glad we talked about the worms and the flies because throughout history, there have been, of course, unfortunate examples where um, scientists and medicine have done experiments upon humans. And obviously that's unethical because, you know, it's not, eth it's not ethical to test out drugs and different things on humans. And so can you expand on why it is unethical to say you use humans as subjects for the most part? Absolutely. So I think one aspect that is sometimes overlooked is we all know that doctors, you know, swear an oath to do no harm and their focus is, you know, quality of life and helping people. And what um, a lot of people don't realize is research scientists, while we don't officially swear an oath, we hold ourselves to the same standard and we don't want to cause undue suffering or undue pain. But the simple truth of the matter is we don't know how certain things work unless we break them. So I could induce a mutation in this microscopic worm to see what would happen to the worm. 
which I would never be able to do in a higher organism because it's going to be, you know, either lethal or it's going to induce some type of defect that is going to cause a very poor quality of life. I mean, this is not even talking so much about humans. We can just consider, you know, primate research, which is, is definitely something that is done very, very rarely now because we have so many what we would consider lower organisms to do studies on. But the data is still valid. The genes still work the same way. Or we can t look from worms and then we can go kind of up the chain, if you will, to flies. And we see, okay, these are still working the same way. Then if we need to, we can go to something like zebrafish or we can go to mice and we can say, okay, all these things are working the same. And then if we use computers to analyze genetic code, we can see the genes look almost exactly the same between mice and humans. So we can extrapolate the same thing as probably happening in humans or the same thing would happen in humans. And in that way, we can, again, test what happens when I deliberately break something. Or we can test what happens when I want to test a new compound, you know, hearkening back to, to medicine man. Maybe I've isolated some compounds from nature and I want to see their impact on the way cells grow. I don't want to do that in an organism that is going to then have pain and suffering. C. elegans don't have pain receptors. They have, you know, mechanical receptors, they have touch receptors, but they don't have what we would consider to be pain receptors. And that's a wonderful explanation. And, you know, as a non-scientist myself, I don't know what has or does not have pain receptors. So it totally makes sense on the different categories of uh, life forms. And obviously, throughout the history of, you know, medical science, and especially research, there has been various, you know, ways in which they have experimented on different animals. And today, I think a lot of the medical community and scientific community has, they've, they've learned lessons on what to use and what not to use. Absolutely. Excellent. And that transitions to uh, the next question. And can you uh, describe your experience working with multidisciplinary teams? Uh, certainly. So um, I will say after a very passionate uh, start in biomedical research, by the time my graduate career was drawing to a close, um, I had decided that bench research as it's envisioned or it, it you know comes into play in an academic setting was not going to be right for me. So the folks that I knew that were academic molecular biologists were very, very focused on, for example, that one genetic pathway. And that's what they would do for the entirety of their career. And that l depth of knowledge was really essential to get those all-important research grants so that you could pay for your host of graduate students and you could pay to continue the research and, and push that frontier of knowledge. But that continual deep dive over the course of what becomes fundamentally decades wasn't what I was passionate about or I'm not passionate about. And instead, I'm passionate about learning new things and putting knowledge into use in, in different and unique ways. And so towards the end of my graduate career, I began to investigate alternative career paths, if you will. And in my academic background, you either stayed an ivory tower academic, which meant you stayed in a traditional research university, or if you really wanted to sell your soul to the dark side, you went to pharmaceutical companies or, you know, big drug manufacturers. And then there was a very tiny percentage of us that did something completely different, and that was to head towards government service. And so I decided that perhaps would be an interesting calling for me. Now, on the way to joining government service, I actually took my foundational knowledge in DNA, not so much in worm DNA, but just DNA in general, and I went to work for a private forensic company. Now, we weren't, you know, who's your daddy, Jerry Springer kind of, you know, 
paternity testing forensic company, we did um, advanced research on behalf of the government, and we were actually investigating a sort of still emerging field called forensic geolocation. And what we did was we were doing research into the host of geologic and chemical and biological signals that are around us in the world and the way that you could use those various data repositories and various scientific knowledge to basically assemble almost like a Venn diagram of, okay, I have these particular rocks and I have these particular chemical signatures and I have these particular pollen grains and I have these particular DNA samples. And if I overlay all those together on a map, this is the location that it came from. And so that's what the research effort I was working with um, when I was at the private company was for a time. And then I parlayed that experience into joining as a, a civil servant or joining the government uh, directly as a program manager. So I moved from doing the actual developmental research to then sort of identifying what was the horizon, where did we need to push scientific knowledge to be able to address government needs. Um, I specifically worked in the intelligence community. And I started off working projects that were still connected to that forensic background, were still connected to my biology background. Um, but when I joined um, my government office, I actually was the first molecular biologist they had ever hired. And so right away, I'm, I'm in the room with chemists. I'm in the room with particle experts. I'm in the room actually at times with nuclear physicists and mathematicians and statisticians. And very quickly learned that my niche knowledge of, you know, how worms have seizures wasn't useful, but my sort of general understanding of the way that we could put biological information to use for us was extremely useful. Or, you know, random biological facts that I happen to have accumulated over the years could then be put to unique problem solving when taken together with all these other team members. It was really great and really fun and interesting time, and I really enjoyed the work. I had an opportunity to work forensics. I actually, at um, one point in time, briefly managed some virtual reality programs. They needed someone to step in and take over the programs, and um, by uh, random chance, I happened to be the only person in the office who played World of Warcraft. And so they're like, you know how virtual works. You can lead this program. And I'm like, uh I know how to play a night elf druid, you know, I mean, but <laughs> again, it was my ability to think as a scientist, which is really what they needed, um, and my ability to to function as a program manager. And so I, I worked virtual reality for a while. I worked advanced materials, which as a molecular biologist, I have a, a fairly strong foundation in chemistry as well. So I was able to apply that kind of combination of knowledge in looking at new materials. I interacted a little bit with NASA on some of their specialty materials and what they need to do to make sure materials can withstand the pressures and the extreme conditions that, that they're exposed to. Um, and it was it was really a great and dynamic and fun time. Interacted with a lot of different people that I never would have interacted with had I stuck with what was a sort of typical career path for someone with my academic training. So thank you for uh, going over your, 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 your background. There's a lot to unpack there. I guess the first question as a follow-up is, why is going into pharmaceuticals, what did you say? Like, <laughs> going selling your soul to the dark side. Selling your soul. Now, <laughs> I, I get that because, you know, I mean, pharmaceutical industry makes up billions and billions. So, and they also produce great, great drugs. But most pharmaceutical companies are for-profit, Nothing wrong with for profit, but 
when you have the for-profit uh, drive, that also means that certain decisions are made. So can you expound, I guess you can say, on, on, on the research scientist view of pharmaceuticals? Yes. Um, so I think you hit it on the head with sort of that idea that, you know, the big bad pharmaceutical companies are driven by a bottom line or profit margin. So at the time that I was in graduate school, because I would certainly argue that I don't think many people think this anymore. But when I was in graduate school, there was this perception that if you went to work for a profit-driven company, that there would be someone, you know, say a suit who may or may not know any biology that was going to come down and tell you, you have to stop this research project because we don't think it's going to return sufficient profit for us. And it could be, to you as the bench scientist, the most intellectually stimulating project you've ever envisioned or ever set upon path to of discovery but someone else is saying you can't do that so that's why there was sort of this view that pharmaceuticals was the bad way to go but the flip side of that was in some cases there was a little bit of understanding that you might go down that path because you wanted that secure paycheck and you wanted maybe you know slightly better paycheck especially right out of graduate school but very very few people would have considered going a government career track because you got no glory and you got no money. And that's funny because the government, from my perspective, always has seemed like a really good option. Besides the fact that you're working for the government, say state, federal, whatever, but you're also really helping out the country. And I don't know if that sounds naive, but I think some people's views of the government is stuck in like the DMV where like you go and get your driver's license, <laughs> yes. you're like, I can't stand the government. Or, you know, you're watching the news and you can't stand the national politics because, well, it's the national politics. But there are literally thousands and thousands and tens and thousands of hardworking government workers who are there to do excellent work every day and to very little fanfare. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Now, when you're in the government, and it sounded like the team that you're on there was truly multidisciplinary, that must have been very intellectually stimulating and I'm assuming creative at times. Absolutely, it was. You know, I, I once joked that um, some of the best ideas I have ever seen, research ideas I've ever seen sketched out came out on like cocktail napkins, not necessarily literal cocktail napkins, but we would be sitting around and just everyone's unique background and everyone's different way of viewing the world, someone would say one little fact or one little piece, you know, hey, this is an outstanding question that I've always wondered about. And someone else from a completely different discipline would be like, well, you know, that actually sounds like this circumstance uh, in my particular field of expertise. And pretty soon you're, you've got this hours long conversation going and you've sketched out a way to incorporate astrophysics and molecular biology and to identify explosive particles. I made all those up, please, let everyone know. But, you know, that was the kind of conversations that we would have. So, yes, it was very, very stimulating. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Shelley Carter, and we'll be right back after a short break. At American Public University, we believe that higher education can unlock higher purpose. So we offer 200 modern programs for those who want to make a difference. 
and we believe education must adapt to students' needs. That's why we've made it accessible through online classes and flexible with monthly program starts. American Public University, within reach, without limits. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we're back with Dr. Shelley Carter. For me, that's one of the things that is one of the best aspects of collaboration is when you are able to talk to a scientist, a STEM person. And then if you're able to then talk to a philosopher or um, a theologian or, or whatever, or a historian, and you're able to really bring together everybody's expertise. And just by talking, you can find those connections that by yourself, of course, you would never be able to have those connections. And that's why it's so important to always be working towards innovation. It's so important to be open to new ideas. And that leads us to uh, the third question is, can you describe how and why you transitioned to higher education? Certainly. So, um, again, that's kind of this kind of a funny aspect of my particular path. But when I went into graduate school, I, you know, I was very firmly set on I was going to be an academic bench scientist. And and to most academic bench scientists, you take a teaching job because you need a regular paycheck. So you're going to work for a university. They're going to pay you while you're trying to do your research, while you're trying to get grant money, and hopefully you get grant money and you can actually have summer salary. But in exchange for that, the university is going to require that you at least see students. In many cases, in in heavily research-driven universities, not in all, but in many heavily driven research universities, teaching is definitely secondary and teaching is definitely not the priority of most professors and most faculty members. And I went in with that same kind of worldview. Teaching these students is taking away from my time to do research. But um, then I had the opportunity, but the particular research grant I was on ended, and therefore my advisor was not able to support me as an RA, as in a research assistant. Instead, I had to take one of the department's teaching assistantships. And I had an opportunity to teach some upper-level undergraduate laboratory classes, but they were truly discovery-based. So I was guiding the students in how to come up with unique research studies and how to do tests using the worms and using yeast and using other things. And I began to really enjoy that. And then I, I happened to become connected to a different department at my university where our interdisciplinary bachelor's program lived. Originally, this was the program where you got to design your own major. So people would study very, very niche things and they would come out with a bachelor's of science in, you know, Japanese anime applied to Middle Eastern culture, whatever they wanted to do. And they had just a limited number of interdisciplinary science courses. And it was really focused on that connection between the different disciplines of science and how science builds upon itself. And it was focused on those aspects of what does this mean for society as opposed to can you dissect this microscopic worm. And they needed someone to teach some of their science courses because the professor retired suddenly. And somehow or another, I don't even remember how my name got put in the hat, but I ended up in my final year of graduate school teaching these courses for that program. And I truly loved what I saw from the students. These were students who were embracing science because it was interesting. They were not the pre-meds who just wanted to know, what do I need to know to pass the MCAT? They weren't in the classes because they had to take the classes. They were in the classes because they wanted to take them. And seeing them sort of light up as they understood how science worked and how wonderful 
encompassing and, you know, innovative science can be really just reignited my passion for the field as just a concept, if you will, as opposed to, you know, an activity of going to the bench every day. And so I moved to Northern Virginia to work for the private forensic company. And as a result of going from, you know, graduate student hours of 10 to 12 hours every day in the lab to, to having sort of a traditional job, if you will, where I worked kind of set hours and they were eight hours a day and no weekends. And I'm like, I'm kind of bored. So I contacted a local community college and I started to teach introductory biology for them for the non-majors. So again, it was that population who, who opted to take this class. Yes, to address their natural science credit that they needed to take, but they chose biology over the other options. And they just tended to be more interesting in why the information mattered to them. Um, you know, we talk about, for example, biological macromolecules and biology majors are like, oh yeah, you put together these, these, and this, and you get to this biochemical pathway. Non-majors tend to be like, Oh, so this is why I need a certain mix of fat, protein, and carbohydrates in my diet. And, and it just really has a different relevance for them. And I really, really grew to love that. And so I, I adjunct for um, most of my professional career at the community college level. I also continued to teach the interdisciplinary science classes for my old university. We converted those to online. So I actually was part of the longest standing online program in the state of Alabama. And originally they were what we would call correspondence courses. So the students just emailed me papers and I emailed back comments. But then we moved them into sort of more interactive courses as we envision online now. And just, I, I really was impassioned by that. But I also began to very much feel lacking in my own skills. Again, I was trained as a bench scientist. I wasn't trained to be an instructor. Um, and I realized that I wasn't um, serving my students very well because I just didn't know how. I didn't know how to help them learn the information. I didn't know how to assess them. You know, coming out of graduate school, I thought, I stand up here, I lecture, I'm going to give you a really, really long test, and you're going to spit out a bunch of facts for me. Well, that's not necessarily the best way to demonstrate knowledge. Um, and so as I was working for the government and as I was teaching, I actually went back to school myself. Um, I am perhaps dangerously overeducated at times. But, you know, even with my PhD, I went back to get a master's in education and instructional design because I wanted to understand more about how to reach learners and how to structure courses and materials so that it has maximum positive impact on students. And then through um, a whole host of life changes, I decided to leave government service. And at that point in time, I was... Um, had become more active in teaching for a variety of universities in different formats, online, competency-based education, hybrid systems. I had done um, a lot of course design work. I also had done, um, you know, some instructional materials development for different publishing companies. And so I decided to return full-time to higher education. And that was about six years ago now. That's excellent. And honestly, your career sounds uh, similar to mine. Not the science part, but <laughs> um, when I was in graduate school, I was probably insufferable, honestly, um, completely egotistical. And music was the only thing that was important. And, you know, my world was only going to be around other people with doctorates. And everything changed when I taught that first community college class. And I was able to really teach students who really wanted and needed 
to learn to go on and get their associates and get on their bachelor's and get jobs. And higher education and especially graduate education is great, but it's also a very small percentage of education in which, I guess you can say, highly driven and motivated academic people go on and do stuff, which is wonderful. But really, um, one of the best things to do is is to really teach and, and help teach everyone so they can go on and fulfill their needs for themselves and their families. And I really like what you're talking about, especially with biology, because I always talk about information literacy. And, you know, with scientific literacy, what you're talking about with the fats and the carbohydrates, I would have been one of your students where I'm like, oh, that's the mixture of proteins and carbohydrates that you need for like healthy living. Do you notice that as far as students go, that they have good scientific literacy or is that something that always still needs to be improved? I definitely think that's something that still needs to be improved. I think I don't really know when it happens. My guess is sometimes in you know grade or perhaps middle school, people begin to sort of form this self-image in which they are either a, a, a geek or a science person or they're not a science person. And that begins to influence a lot of their outlook and a lot of their pursuit of knowledge. And so depending on how they've kind of incorporated that mindset, science becomes something that they call scary. Just talking about science, they're going to like kind of shut down because they're like, nope, this is something I'm not good at. This is something that's scary. This is something I don't need to listen to. I mean, it it truly shocks me to hear anyone say, or for example, put in their intro discussion, um, I don't really see the relevance of science, or I don't really see how this class is going to matter, but I had to take a science class. This person right here, this is my target for this class. I, this person is going to leave this class understanding everything that science does for us, and, and that it's not scary, and that it is all around us. And every time you go to the store and you're trying to decide, do I want to buy the organic or do I want to buy the non-organic? Do I you know, vote for a politician who talks about green energy. What does green energy even mean? All of that requires a little bit of scientific literacy. And I think that we do have the tools and the resources there for students, but we need to just kind of break this idea that you're a science person or you're not a science person. And I really love that. Science is oftentimes coupled with math and people will think of themselves as either I'm good at math or I'm not, or I'm good at science or I'm not. And again, with music, I see that all the time. People are like, well, no, no, I can't learn piano or I can't learn guitar because I'm just not uh, musical. But as with anything, I think with math, it's about systematically learning the fundamentals slowly over time. And then guess what? You can do it. You can do that with guitar. You can do that with math and you can do that with science. But I think there's, there's a lot of cultural norms in which people um, expect scientists to be smart and nerdy. And, you know, scientists are just like everybody else. They just have a passion for something. And anybody can be a scientist. Uh, they just have to put in the time. Now, how much math have you had to uh, become proficient at? So, you know, up to trig, beyond trig? In terms of some STEM disciplines, I will say many biology programs do not require the same degree of math, if, if we consider it something like an engineering field. So in most um, biological sciences, you will take math 
through at least calculus. You may take calculus too, but calculus two is less common. And instead, after you completed calculus, so some higher level math, you then would switch into taking more um, statistics courses. So still mathematical reasoning, mathematical approach, but you will not take as much trigonometry or you wouldn't take all the way to calculus three, whereas that might be necessary for a physics program or an electrical engineering. So when I was um, in undergraduate, I did take completed calculus, and I also completed um, a, a two-course series in uh, statistics. And that's wonderful. I personally think everybody should, you know, instead of, <laughs> this is my own personal opinion, let me put that out there, instead of everybody always taking algebra for an, like an undergraduate, they should take statistics. In the news you consume every day, they use statistics. And so understanding what stats mean and what those numbers mean in the, in, in the variance and just you know, instead of inferring and really, re really digging deep into, into numbers and stats, that would be really excellent for people to become better at it. And it's really nice to hear that, at least in, in your field, um, statistics is more common than, say, trig or calc. Absolutely. And I would agree. I, I wholeheartedly think we should have statistics as a core in any education system. If we just think about where we are right now in the world and when there were initial discussions about uh, mortality rate associated with um, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, like understanding what those numbers mean and understanding what statistics means. You can't take a pool of 100 and pick out three to get your 3%. You've got to consider, you know, in some pop some groups, it's going to be much higher than three out of 100. And in other groups, it's going to be much lower than three out of 100. And that's just how statistics work. And it's, it's sad to boil down human impacts to numbers. But conceptualizing it differently, I think would be easier if we had a, a broader foundation of statistical education. Oh, I completely agree. You know, we can both agree on one thing. It's, you know, statistics are important. And, um, and just like you're saying, with, with, with COVID and you look at the data, you know, different age groups are much worse impacted. Um, the older you are, especially 85 plus, 75 plus, it's quite devastating. And you get uh, younger and younger, then it's not. Um, and then you even get to different aspects of race. If you're, you know, white or black or Hispanic, COVID has impacted those populations differently. There's a many different sociological reasons you can go into that. But when you look at the raw stats, you can see a, a difference. And then, and then from there, you can have a conversation. You know, you can have a, you know, a scientifically literate conversation. And then also, hopefully, a policy conversation on, on, on how to head that. Now, since we're talking a little bit, a little bit about COVID, what, what are some of the common misconceptions that you've heard um, about COVID, like from, from a science perspective that you're like, hmm, um, sure. I will tackle the probably the most timely misconception I think that's going on right now. So just after we have, you know, approval in the U.S. for one vaccine, um, I believe earlier today there may have been approval for the a second vaccination. But I have heard repeated a disturbing number of times that the vaccines were rushed. Um, coming with sort of, you know, there was this perception that there's an 18-month pharmaceutical development cycle. The truth of the matter is a large percentage of that 18 months has always related to the red tape that keeps the government running, if you will, it's bureaucracy. You know, things come through, they sit on someone's desk for a couple of weeks. Okay, I've got my service level agreement. I'm going to look at these and, you know, I've got so many months to look at these or I've got so many weeks to look at these. And I've gotten hundreds of different applications and hundreds of different data sets that I have to look at. 
the, the community and society and everyone who could came together in this case and said, we are not going to sit on things associated with coronavirus vaccinations or coronavirus treatments. If something comes in with that tag, we're going to look at it immediately. And just that focus and that commitment to immediate review, thorough review, expedited the process. It did not rush the process. And that is a wonderful um, observation. And I've heard that too, about being, quote, rushed. <laughs> and and it makes sense that when it comes to a bureaucracy, as with anything, there's certain processes that are in place. And it's not to improve efficiency, but it's to it, it exist just because it's there, if that makes sense. Absolutely. We were talking earlier about that perception about government, you know, the DMV kind of mindset. I, I'm going to go to the DMV and it's going to take me all day to get my driver's license. That's just kind of the idea we have, you know, why, why rush is good enough for government. But it doesn't have to be that way. And the funny thing with life is not many things actually have to be that way, but it's very difficult to facilitate and, of course, and sometimes to encourage change. A wonderful conversation, Shelley. Um, I, of course, apologize for being a little sick, but any final words? Um, I just want to say again, thank you for inviting me um, and encourage everyone or anyone listening. Don't be afraid of science. If you have any questions, yeah, find us, find a friendly neighborhood scientist and ask them. Um, there are a lot of resources and a lot of scientists who, who truly are passionate about public education and helping people understand. Um, and so if you have a question, just find the right person to ask. And that is wonderful. And I will be asking you many questions very soon. <laughs> and today we are talking to Dr. Shelley Carter, Program Director in the School of STEM. And of course, my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer. For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU. American Public University.